Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Joining us today is Bruce Gilley. He is professor of political science at Portland State University. His books include The Right to Rule, How States Win and Lose Legitimacy. His new book is The Last Imperialist, Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire. And that is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Gilley. Thank you, Dr. Bowerland. It's great to be here. Uh, first, uh, let me, general question, what brought you to the subject? Um, really an accident, I would say. I mean, I'm a political scientist, so I, I was uh, someone who was paying attention to um, what my colleagues were working on in terms of comparative development and which countries have succeeded and which countries have failed. And I kept noticing that all the countries that were former British colonies had succeeded more than others. And uh, no one was really pointing that out uh, other than with embarrassed silence. So I got into that question. And as I did, I realized there was this vast gap between the kind of colonialism bad mythology and ideology that pervades the academy mm -hmm. and what the empirical evidence was actually telling us. And you singled out this man as, I mean, would you want to say he, he was colonialism in its, in Incarnate. its form? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I, I suppose I got into him because um, my first foray into this topic of colonialism was to actually go back and read some of the work of uh, Chinua Akebe, the Nigerian novelist who wrote Things Fall Apart, and then really not much else after that. But, uh, you know, my discovery was Chinua Kebe was never anti-colonial, even though he's kind of in the pantheon of anti-colonial ideologues in the academy. But he never was, actually. Much of what he said was positive. In his last book, he makes a very clear case for British colonialism in Nigeria. And it was researching that article that I came upon Sir Alan Burns. Um, and what interested me about Burns was he was making the defense of the British Empire very late in the day, 1950s, 60s, 70s. He died in 1980. And that was intriguing to me. And then uh, noticing that he had essentially become the spokesman for British colonialism in the 50s during the key debates at the UN and elsewhere about decolonization. Um, and then I realized no one had written anything about him. So I was fortunate enough to track his family down. All his papers and letters and uh, memos were sitting in an attic, uh, rotting away in the north of England. And, you know, this was a man who, you know, but for the colonial cringe, would be celebrated as a national hero. And uh, and that just motivated me to, to bring his life to readers. So as you examine the scholarship, uh, it's not that Burns is held up as a, as a colonial demon. 
he's just kind of not talked about. He, right. He's just he's just kind of disappeared. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a person who is hard to dislike. I mean, I, I think you'd have to be a uh, a a a true and tried anti-colonial zealot to dislike this person as a human being. I mean, by all accounts, he was loved by all the peoples he worked with throughout the developing countries and the colonies he worked with, whether it was the British Caribbean, Fiji, Africa, um, even at the UN where he interacted with people from every different country. I mean, he was a very likable person and, uh, and, and much fondly remembered in all the places he ruled. Um, so that's, that's him, the, him, the personality. It, there's not much reference to him other than you get some English professors saying, oh, he's a writes tainted colonial historiography. And you get some postmodernists saying he was trying to optimize exploitation and this kind of uh, kind of asides. But no, he was a, he was a well-liked person. What, what is hated about him is simply that he made the case for colonialism very late in the day and continued to make it as a lot of these colonies were spiraling into disaster in the immediate post-colonial period. So I think to the extent that he's, he's disliked, it's because he was vindicated so clearly in the last decades before he died. Yeah. And as you go into, we, and we can discuss this, the people, uh, the native peoples, they, they actually were, were quite admiring of him uh, after he had formed a record of what we would consider uh, very responsible and just colonial rule. And so that's, I mean, it, it, that's why the academics just prefer probably not to talk about him because, not because of him, but because of the native peoples whom the anti-imperialist, multiculturalist, anti-colonialist academics wish to honor their, their voices. And, I mean, you've had experience uh, with, with the uh, ferocity of the anti-colonialist uh, attitudes in the Stalinist attitudes on this issue in in academia. So it actually doesn't surprise me that he best just not not to talk about this this disconfirming case uh, right, on their position. He's uh, you know that's the dirty secret, right? Is actually colonialism was widely welcomed and supported and highly legitimate by any comparative view of that matter. Now, of course, now I get the English professors coming in and saying all, all governments are illegitimate and, you know, our American government is evil too, which I say, okay, that thank you. You just made my case that you have no basis on which to make these claims. But by all accounts, he was uh, widely loved. There's a story I tell in the book where his uh, sort of great, great, great nephew, um, so his, his, his brother's grandson is at a anthropology class at the University of British Columbia in the 1960s and goes up to a Ghanaian woman after class and says, hey, you know, my, my great uncle was uh, governor of the Gold Coast, as it was then called. And, and she, of course, in the zeitgeist of the 60s, assails him for being uh, related to a colonial oppressor. <laughs> so she goes back to Ghana during the summer holidays and recounts this story to her elders, and they give her a good old tongue lashing and say, you go back and apologize to him. Sir Helen Burns was probably the best ruler we've ever had in Ghana. Uh, we loved him. Uh, he was uh, democratic. He was open. Ghana's never been as good as it was under him. So this is the sort of... Well, well Bruce, Bruce, so we only know this because she did go back and apologize then, yes? Yes, she did. Good for her. Yeah, good, good for her. her. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what 
kind of an apology it was, but the, the point being that, you know, those who actually lived under colonialism, as opposed to the English and film studies professors of today and the woke grandchildren uh, who consider themselves to be victims of colonialism, even though they never lived there, uh, are so out of touch with the reality of those times. And yet they are held up as uh, voices of colonial you know, oppression, our latest Nobel Prize in literature being a great example. Uh, people who benefited, and if anything, they were fleeing not colonialists, but but post-colonial despots, and that's why most of them are in living in the West. So yeah. we're so sort of disembedded from the actual context and history, and nobody has spoken up against this kind of ideology. And I guess my book is a is a first uh, installment in what I hope will be a bigger project to do this. Uh, let's get to Burns. Where was he born? Born in St. Kitts uh, and Nevis, uh, St. Christopher and Nevis. Uh, his family had uh, moved to the Caribbean, or his great-grandfather had fled from, uh, we're not sure what, in Scotland in the early 19th century. And uh, so he was born in the colonies, colonial bred, colonial raised. Um, colonial civil service was in the family tradition. Uh, he started as a junior revenue officer in St. Christopher and moved to Africa, and that was uh, the beginning of his long ascent in colonial civil service. What did he see in the colonies as a child? This would be the 1890s and, and aughts? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the case for British colonialism is so patently clear in the island colonies. Uh, and indeed, there's lots of studies of islands and showing how they're, you know, that the sort of the slam dunk for colonialism. I mean, absent colonialism, the, the, these are just sort of barren rocks with uh, maybe cannibalistic, you know, Caribs living on them. Um, he saw that colonialism was literally what brought these places to life. It gave them governance, it gave them development, it, it allowed their populations to expand. Um, his first memory is actually of a, of a, of a riot uh, on St. Kitts and Nevis, where the, uh, the the workers rioting against the plantation owners and the British sending in a commission and the commission creating new rules and policies. And all this was like colonialism doing what it's supposed to do, which is create good governance. And I think from there, he takes a view that, you know, m much of these places absent colonialism would have been far worse off. I often say, you know, look who's not crossing our southern border these days. There's no one from Barbados or the Bahamas or Belize trying to walk across the Rio Grande. Well, there's a reason for that, right? These were British colonies. They left behind a legacy of good governance and reasonable development, and people don't flee. He wanted to continue. Uh, I mean, his child did, didn't lead him in any rebellious direction, and you say his his... Uh, as he entered, as he got educated and entered the, the service, he was a, quote, junior revenue officer. What job was that? Well, um, one of the jobs was actually he had to go out and meet the uh, ships arriving at St. Kitts because most of the revenues in a colony like this were import revenues. So he had to literally get in these skiffs and be rowed out over the surf. And uh, a lot of his earliest memories were of the, the dangerous returns to the office uh, through the surf um, in these uh, in these skiffs, were, which were going out to, to meet and inventory the cargo of ships. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a person who's an administrative genius. He starts compiling uh, books on, on rules that haven't been compiled. And, uh, and then is basically told, look, if you want to make it in the colonial civil service, there's two options. There's India or there's Africa. 
the India civil service and the British system operated completely separately. So to get into the India civil service, you really needed to be in the UK, you know, with the connections, with the civil service exam. So that's how he ends up in Africa. Is it's kind of the only route for him out of the British Caribbean and lands in Africa, literally on the eve of World War One, and is quickly thrown into fighting in the Cameroons. Hmm. And early on, what made him good at his job? I mean, was was it was it uh, making sure that corruption? I mean, whenever you have you know imports and 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 trade, uh, it can in this situation corruption can easily set in. Uh, he just simply had the the ethical makeup of no. That's I, I, I am scrupulous, and we're going to have order, and uh, we're we're going to have uh, we're going to have a fair system. That was yeah, the I ethos. Think, I I think Burns was um, important because he was um, just one of these people who who was an administrative person, and maybe you know people say this is the genius of the British colonial system was basically competent administration. Um, and this meant uh, uh, rules, this meant plans, um, this meant, uh, you know, following um, outlines of plans to, to get things done. And he was an administrative genius. And I think I think uh, what Burns does is he very quickly attracts the attention of uh, Lord Lugard. And that's a, kind of one of his key moments in his career. Lord Lugard, of course, is the explorer uh, who basically created modern Nigeria. Uh, Lugard is a kind of giant in British colonialism in Africa, um, mainly because he's the one who sort of outlines this idea of the sort of indirect rule, the dual mandate, as he calls it, where you rule through local institutions and try and transform them through their kind of interaction with the British uh, you know, governance system. And uh, Lugard uh, kind of takes takes Burns under his wing and, and sort of mentors him. And uh, and that's a fundamental shift uh, for Burns. That really sets his career off and uh, eventually brings him back to be governor of the Gold Coast, which became Ghana um, during World War II and in the years after World War II, which is really, you know, the peak of his career as a, as a colonial governor. You quote Octavio Paz, and here's the statement, the creation of a universal order was the most extraordinary accomplishment of colonialism. What did he mean by that? Tovio Paz was writing of Spanish colonialism in Mexico. And you would think there's not a lot good to be said about that. But I think, uh, especially we're talking on the eve of Columbus Day, there is a lot of good to be said about Spanish and Portuguese colonialism in the Americas, and certainly of the later 19th and 20th century colonialism in other parts of the world. And Paz was basically saying that what the colonial counter did was it took places where societies were fragmented and where your status depended on your group membership. And it transformed that into societies where your status was to belong to a common civil order and your group membership would slowly, of course, not immediately, but slowly disappear as relevant in what rights and responsibilities you had. That's the universal order Paz was seeing in Mexico uh, under Spanish colonialism. 
And I think it's a very clear case, especially when you go to even more ethnically diverse societies like Nigeria, where Burns worked, to say that, you know, colonialism literally created these nations. Um, and if you wanted to be honest about who are the fathers of the nations, who should be the national heroes, it's the colonial governors, it's the colonial uh, system that literally created a common civic space in which people were treated as equals simply by virtue of belonging to that civic space. That's what Paz was talking about. And that was for Paz to write that, you know, he, he was a Marxist, but he understood, um, you know, and this is in the 60s when he's writing that, that look, you know, integrated societies don't just happen. Uh, they have to be created. And what the European encounter did was it brought this idea of a shared civic space to peoples that would not have forged it on their own. There's very little evidence that this would have come into being absent the colonial encounter. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You mentioned World War I, uh, Burns, and he, he, he gets involved in, in the fighting. How did he hold up under fire? I mean, what, what actually was his, was his position? Well, he got sent into uh, the British uh, Cameroons, uh, the, the German Cameroons, which then became British Cameroons after the war. Um, and it was a jungle, jungle filled, uh, wet, um, thick, dense vegetation. Uh, he was leading a detachment. Um, they were trying to storm German positions in the inland. Um, he held up quite well, apparently, under fire. Uh, we have his letters to his wife, which recount the battles. Um, in a sense, he was fortunate that uh, the fighting was so tough because one of the decisions that was made that I think saved his life, and there's many instances where his life is saved in his career from a close encounter with death, um, is basically they needed more soldiers. And Burns was taken out of the field and sent back to British Lagos to oversee recruitment of more soldiers. By the end of the war, the detachment that he was leading was virtually all dead because the fighting in the inland of Cameroon went on for so long. So his administrative genius or his 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 knack for organization uh, got him out of the field and probably saved him. Yeah. What was the Egba uprising? So. The Egba uprising, which occurs uh, towards the end of the war um, and just in the year after the war in Nigeria, was essentially a, um, a problem of a group that had uh, come into an area as refugees, fleeing uh, the Fulani slave empire in the north of Nigeria, and had created a uh, essentially a huge refugee camp known as as Egba of this group that had fled persecution um, from the Fulani slave lords of the north. And at a certain point, they uh, were one of the one of the things the Brits were doing uh, was to try and kind of reorganize tribal government along civic lines with uh, clear lines of authority with taxation powers. 
And uh, one of these reforms uh, to increase taxes um, and really to replace kind of tribal levies with taxes um, brought some resistance, mainly because of intertribal feuds. And uh, the rebels seized a train full of, of gold and silver, and uh, Burns was sent in as one of part of the detachment to relieve the besieged British soldiers. And... Um, People see the Egba uprising as kind of anti-colonial resistance. I think this is kind of one of these dirty secrets of, of anti-colonial historiography that every single problem was anti-colonial resistance when it when it wasn't, you know, that the Nigerians rallied around the British here. But I think for Burns, it was a reminder that, you know, these systems need to be modernized because it might have been okay in the early 19th century to leave the tribal chiefs in power, but the problem was, you know, modernity was coming. And I think this is another really important thing. Modernity was coming to these places one way or another. Um, and the question was, how would it come? And who would oversee the transformation of modernity? And I think the Egba uprising of 1919 was one of those moments, those clarifying moments in British colonial history, where the British realized that, you know, the need to modernize these archaic systems was more pressing than they realized. And Burns ends up being sort of part of that modernization program. Yeah. You go into, and certainly the academics deeply go into uh, sexual relations uh, between natives and administrators, uh, between British and Africans or, or Caribbeans. Uh, what, how did those generally work uh, in the places that Burns occupied? So it's interesting that... Um, you know, sexuality is one of those things where I, I mean, I love to call out the hypocrisy of the academy and, and I love the studies of sexuality. So so in so many ways, when we look at uh, writing on colonialism in the modern academy, the colonialists are evil when they do A and the colonialists are always also evil when they don't do A. And and it's OK in the academy to say contradictory things, because as long as you're being anti-colonial, then you're on the right side of history. So yeah. sexuality is a great example of that. So when colonial officials uh, have sex with local women, that's bad because that's exploiting them, objectifying them, um, all, all the kind of you know, working out uh, male psychological problems in the bush, et cetera, et cetera. So. That's bad. Then we see other instances, and this is kind of what's happening during the Burns era, where the, the colonial government is starting to monitor sexual sexuality and sexual relations and mistresses and whatnot because they realize um, it's it's causing problems within the civil service, within the native communities. So the colonial government bans sexual relationships um, or mistresses. and. The colonial scholars, anti-colonial scholars jump on this and say, oh, that's bad, too. That's terrible, because uh, when you ban uh, sexual relations between the, the different groups and the races, it shows you're racist, first of all, because you're obviously trying to maintain the purity of the white people. So that was bad. And when you ban sexual relations, you're also denying them access to power, denying natives access to power, which often comes through sexuality or, or romantic relationships. So that shows you're trying to preserve European imperialism. And so we get this kind of schizophrenic uh, historiography on the question of sexuality in the colonies. When the British officials are having sex with local women, they're 
sadists and objectification. And when they're not, they're trying to be race purists and protect imperial rule. And all this is kind of stirring during the 20s and the time when Burns is a young man himself and um, no evidence that he ever took a mistress. But um, but it's interesting to study how sexuality is, uh, you know, treated as whatever the colonialists did must have been evil. And then just, you know, write the Deserata after that. Uh, when he was in the Bahamas, he, he did cope with some unrest there. Generally, how would you characterize his attitude toward uh, the, the, the restiveness of of native native workers peoples um well the main the main instance he dealt with uh in the bahamas when he was colonial secretary there and more or less running the government because the governors were not much interested was a, a riot a prison riot at nassau prison in, in the bahamas and uh essentially the prisoners took over the prison um the government set in sent in a fire truck which sprayed them which Apparently they enjoyed, so that was not effective. So Burns had to actually get a police contingent and uh, retake the prison, uh, which he did. And um, at a certain point, he ordered them to open fire because they had given the prisoners a chance to um, to uh, surrender, and they hadn't. And I think two prisoners were shot dead. After which the riot quickly ended. Um, now, of course, we have this uh, Wagnerian opera of writing on these two rebellious prisoners killed in the literature on colonial Bahamas. This was colonial violence. This was a massacre. You know, some people call this a genocide. You know, two people, we were always getting the word genocide used now. Um, and Burns's view was, look, uh, in, a, in a situation like this, uh, it's a question of minimizing the loss of life. And had they not opened fire earlier, and he deals with the same issue again uh, later on when he's back in Nigeria, you know, the loss of life is going to be much greater. And he always took a view that a uh, a strategically timed use of force against those who have been given every opportunity to surrender is the most humane policy to to pursue. And uh, and he's a, he's a clear defender of colonial violence, if you want to call it that, uh, because his his calculations are preserving the lives of those who would suffer if these rebellious movements are not snuffed out in the early stages. How did uh, he, he served in Belize? How did the local people in Belize respond when Burns was called away? Yeah, so he's in Belize a time when the when when British Honduras, as it was called, or Belize today, is is really suffering from the, the global depression in the 1930s, um, and he essentially single handedly brings Belize back from the brink of disaster. Um, and you know, I, I say in the book, he he really should be considered the father of modern Belize because he he was the transformational agent. So when he gets called back to Britain, and this is on the eve of World War II, and people realize that, that, that something bad is looming in Europe, there's this kind of spontaneous uh, departure ceremony for him um, and his wife. And it's just sort of unplanned um, kind of mass gathering and speeches and teary farewells. And and whatnot, and I think this is uh, much as he experiences in Ghana, the Gold Coast, is people, you know, as colonialism nears its end, and people on the ground are seeing who is likely to succeed their colonial governors, they're starting to suddenly realize what they're about to lose, and this was certainly kind of uh, evident in the departure ceremony for Burns. 
in uh, Belize City uh, just on the eve of World War II. He he lived, you said, until 1980. Uh, he was in the United Nations for, for the, the early years. What was his general attitude toward the United Nations? I think he in initially took the job at the United Nations, and he was the uh, representative on the trusteeship council, which in theory was only dealing with the UN trust territories, but de facto was the debating chamber on all colonial issues at the United Nations. Uh, and his initial view, the reason he took the job um, in 1948-49 uh, uh, was he thought, well, okay, this is going to be you know, much like the League of Nations Mandates Commission, where there's a strong presence of the, um, the mandate powers and, uh, you know, expertise is brought to bear and, you know, they solve problems. Well, of course, the UN turns out to be nothing like the League in that sense, mainly because of the expansion of new countries and the rise of this virulent anti-colonialism so that when he first arrives he's expecting to be a problem-solving uh, person who you know works to improve the lives of others and he quickly realizes this is becoming just uh, sort of like a university english department it's an ideological place of terror and debate by people who have no understanding and no idea about what they're talking about with respect to colonial areas but um but are using it to grandstand and um you know maneuver their countries with respect to the Soviet Union and uh, the Cold War. And yeah. I think by the end of his time, he's thoroughly disgusted with the United Nations. And I think with the idea that uh, the United Nations has anything useful to offer to peoples in developing areas. Yeah. Uh, what did he witness in the decolonization process in Ghana? Well, so Ghana is obviously his, his, where he was the governor, and he is invited to the independence uh, celebrations by Kwame Nkrumah, who is the uh, radical black nationalist who uh, comes to power in the elections prior to independence. And Nkrumah is very much the, the British gentleman and sends him a nice letter saying, uh, we'll have your accommodations. But, um, but Burns spends his time during the independence ceremonies, 1957 in Ghana, you know, talking to all the people he had worked with. Um, and the news is not good. Um, Nkrumah has uh, become um, intolerant. Um, he's talking about nationalizing the cocoa industry, which is the backbone of the economy on which the British had built up prosperity. Um, he is very hostile to the traditional tribal chiefs, um, seeing them as uh, feudal, archaic, holdovers that need to be steamrolled in the interests of the revolution. And um, and Burns is sending back memos to the British, 57, 58, saying this is not going to go well in this country. Of course, that ends up being exactly what happens. The next 10 years in Ghana are a complete disaster. Uh, it becomes a one-party dictatorship. Nkrumah is basically a puppet of the Soviet Union. Um, and it takes until 1996 for Ghana to recover from this post-colonial spiral. Uh, last question, Bruce, given what he saw. Uh, he was dismayed, but not surprised at the uh, bloody history of post-colonial states. Did he, did he end his year, his last years, believing that there was something the Western nations could do to, to fix things? I think his last 
sentiments or sentiments of um, sentiments of, of, of disappointment that the colonial powers had not had the backbone to stand out more strongly against the anti-colonial ideologues at the United Nations and to stand up more strongly and defend their record as colonial powers. And he felt that, that they had let down the peoples who, of course, were the ones who were suffering from these movements. Um, he, I think he felt um, less, less concerned about you know, the reputation of British colonialism than the lives of the people that were suffering that he had worked with and known. Um, and many of whom had by that time fled to, to the British Empire, to, the, to Britain itself. Um, there, was, there was a sense of, of, um, of having neglected that sacred trust um, over those peoples, basically for lack of, of backbone. And, um, and I think that was his, his last sentiment. By 1980, there's no sign of any of this getting better. It's not till the late 80s, 90s, where some of this starts to turn around. And, um, and he was a proud colonialist to the end, and he, he felt they had in some ways betrayed the trust of those whose lives they had um, assumed responsibility for by giving into anti-colonialism at the UN and from these nationalist movements. The book is The Last Imperialist, Sir Alan Byrne's Epic Defense of the British Empire. Professor Gilly, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.